Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Extraterrestrial Reality. Uh, today I have a very interesting story to talk about. Uh, it's a story that occurred in 1950 in Argentina, and it involves an Italian architect who was driving along a highway, a lonely highway, and he found a crashed flying saucer. He actually went inside the saucer, found three dead alien creatures inside, uh, and he was very excited about it, but upset with himself because he didn't have a camera. And uh, the, his friends, he wanted, and plus he wanted to show other people this, so he drove over 100 miles to get a camera and to retrieve some witnesses, and they went back to this place the next day. But when they went back, the object was gone, but it was replaced by a big pile of ashes. And not, but but that wasn't the end of the story. They also saw flying saucers hovering above them, and and also a gigantic cylinder-shaped object even higher up in the sky. Uh, and they, he was actually he managed to snap uh, five pictures of the flying saucers, and only two of them came out. But anyway, this story, you, you could search the internet. Do you do a Google on this and you'll get a lot of different articles about this, but usually uh, for your, mo- these articles are usually containing uh, misinformation or, or they're not, they're, they're uh, embellished or, or they're changed around. They're, they're not, it's not the original story, but luckily uh, I have come up with the uh, original articles that appeared actually in 1955 and 1956 thanks to H.R. Uh, Phillips, who runs a blog UFO site called UFO Disclosure Countdown Clock blog, dot Blogspot. I'll leave the link so you can check out this article. Uh, he actually, uh, uh, about 10 years ago, he compiled a bunch of different articles about this, but he also, uh, to show how sometimes uh, UFO stories get changed around uh, in the telling and retelling, but he was able to pinpoint some uh, a different article from a now defunct uh, UFO website uh, that was run by Nelson Rivera, Rivera. Um, and uh, Rivera had this th- this information listed on his website, which no longer exists. But luckily, H.R. Uh, Phillips has it uploaded on his has it uh, in- included on his uh, blog site. Uh, and and basically, the information that he has here it's it comes from uh, a 1950 this 1956 French publication. Uh, called uh, La Courier Interplanetaire, or which means plan, uh, Interplanetary uh, Courier. Uh, anyway, let's uh, go through this article. Uh, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, anyway, it's uh, the, the guy's name... Uh, it, mo- it, here's another thing. The, this person's name uh, in a lot of articles, e- e- even in, in uh, books by the late Leonard Stringfield, he used a, uh, a, a, a different name. He changed the guy's name around to help protect his identity. Uh, and this story was listed in the uh, first status report of Leonard Stringfield's UFO crash retrievals, as well as uh, uh, a book that he published in 1977 uh, about uh, UFOs. Anyway, I want to get into this story. It, 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 it's a lot of these articles, right, that, about this uh, case. They list the guy, they list the guy's name as his last name is Bota, and actually it's not; it's Bosa. 
Anyway, uh, his name was Dr. Enrico Caratanuto Bosa, and his story first appeared in the Venezuelan newspaper El Universal on Saturday, May 7th, 1955, five years after this event. This event actually occurred in May of 1950. Anyway, it says... uh, uh, it, incur- it, occurred, uh, it appeared in this Venezuelan newspaper and, and it reported that this Italian architect named Dr. Enrico Caratanuto Bosa was driving through the countryside outside the city of Bahia Bianca, excuse me, Bahia Blanca in Argentina and encountered a strange object resting on the ground just off the road. Thinking that it may be a downed airplane, he stopped his vehicle and continued on foot. As he got closer, he noticed that it was a metallic disc-shaped object with a door opened on its side. Curious, he entered the craft and, to his amazement, discovered that there were three strange beings inside that were dead. Now, uh, this is, we're going to, I'm going to use, this is actually a direct commentary from uh, Bosa on this that appeared in this French publication in 1956. Um, And it says here, in the period of April through May 1950, I was in the city of Bahia Blanca, the capital of the province of La Pampa, to build a number of houses. I had a habit from time to time of taking long trips around the province in my vehicle to take my mind off things. On May 15th, 1950, I made one of these such trips when suddenly a silver object on the ground caught my attention. I did not find the thing that important, which was at the left of the road at a distance of about 300 meters. As I approached, I noticed strange details such as skylights and a translucent dome. At 50 meters, or about 164 feet of the object, I stopped and observed the exterior of the vehicle carefully and thought of the remains of a crashed airplane. But the strange shape of the object made me abandon that idea. The passing clouds obstructing the sun produced on the object a strange effect. I thought about leaving the car and to approach on foot. At 10 meters, or about 33 feet away, I realized at last that it was a saucer. As a result of my subconscious, I was as happy as a child, and with the bold spirit that is acquired under those conditions, I did not hesitate to come closer and I did not hesitate to come closer and to enter inside the object whose door was open. Now, uh, there are pictures here that are, I'm going to stop here for a second. There are pictures here. Uh, he had, there was a drawing of the craft from the side view and from, from the, uh, in, uh, interior view. These pictures were obviously taken from this old, uh, French publication, Le Courier, uh, Interplanetaire. And, uh, <clears throat> so they're not that, they don't look that good, but they also have the, so when, if you're, if you're listening to this video, you're really not missing much because the, the pictures aren't that, uh, that I'm showing on the, on the screen right now, aren't that, uh, detailed because there's, they're from an old, uh, publication here. Anyway, continuing here, he says, before entering, I began to examine the object in detail. It had an approximate diameter of 10 meters, or about 33 feet. It was formed in two parts. The bottom one was an inverted saucer-shaped bell, and the other, above, a cylindrical tower and covered by a dome. On top of the dome, there was a strange round lantern. Its total height would be about 4 meters, or about 13 feet. A number of high rectangular windows, I, I have not counted, with long rounded angles. The object was resting on the ground with an inclination of about 20 degrees, so supported by a terrain relief. It had an extravagant chromed surface, magnificently polished, which reflected my image and the sky. It looked like a dead thing. No life, no noise or vibration. 
I looked for the door, which was open precisely at the foot of the tower. I thought that I would have some difficulty in climbing to the edge of the bell, but then I realized that this place was extremely unpolished and rough as sandpaper. I realized that the object was not new because the bottom edge of the bell was a bit deteriorated and chopped in some places. Now, I just want to stop there for a second. I think that's interesting, the fact that the the ramp leading inside this uh, craft was was rough as sandpaper, which suggests that, you know, I guess they they had it set. I guess extraterrestrials, similar to way, the way we do things, we, we make things rough so it's better... Uh, uh, better traction with our feet as we walk on something or walk up an incline. I, I mean, this is this sounds like things that you, the human race does now. Uh, anyway, he says, I put my feet on the rough metal and from that point to the tower, there was a distance of about seven feet without any support. I had to squat to crawl to the door whose approximate dimensions were 1.2 by 0.9 meters or about four feet by three feet. I poked my head inside without seeing much due to a certain darkness that reigned in there, and I smelled a strong odor of ozone and garlic. I immediately jumped inside, whose floor was at a depth of about 60 centimeters, or about 2 feet. The spectacle I saw was so strange that it surpassed my imagination. The floor was a platform that gave me the sensation of sinking slowly under my weight. The control room was perfectly circular, with a height of 2.1 meters, or about 7 feet, of a dark color. Around the wall was a series of skylights, very thick, covered with a transparent material bearing a resemblance to plexiglass. My eyes were getting accustomed to the lighting. The scene I saw was horrible. In the center of the control room, which measured about 3.5 meters, or about 11 feet in diameter, was a strange seat occupied by a man of 1.2 to 1.4 meters, about 4 to 4.5 feet in height, wearing a lead gray overall. His head was round with sparse light hair and bending forward over his chest. The hands were well formed of a light tobacco color. They were resting nervously on two handles or levers that were sticking out of a black box that was a few inches from his body. His face was the same color of his hands with a well-formed straight nose, his lips without a mustache and hairless cheeks. The eyes were large, very dilated and glassy. The shapes of the body, as far as could be guessed, were perfectly human and no hint of an animal species was evident. He looked like a 15-year-old adolescent, but with the features of a man. He was not a dwarf. I touched his arm, which was stiff, and the body was cold. Let me just stop there. Could you imagine? Imagine driving down the highway and you come across something like this, and you actually have the guts enough to go inside to check it out, and you're looking at this. It has had to be incredible. It has to be an incredible feeling, a surreal experience all, all in all. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, it says here, continuing, it says the overall covered his neck closely and the same of on the wrists. The feet were resting slightly on two tubes attached to the floor serving as supports. The overall seemed to be made of hard leather and was inflated at the shoulders, giving the pilot the aspect of a rugby player. 
The man was not fastened. The seat was in a way appropriate for his body and of a red vermilion color. It was supported by a central axis. Now, this is going to be stop here for a second before we continue. I just want to point out that this architect really... I, what's great about this is the details we're getting on the in, what what it looked like inside, what the bodies looked like. It's incredible, and it was it, it's appreciated that we have this kind of a description because this is not uh, normal. We don't usually get these kind of detailed descriptions of uh, of these kind of things when they've had. This is a, this is a, a rare case. Rarely do we have someone coming upon a flying saucer and and walking inside and seeing things like this. We're actually hearing it right here from the horse's mouth. Anyway, continuing, uh, uh, the overall seemed to be, okay, I read that part already. The seat was in a way appropriate for his body and of a red vermilion. It was supported by a central axis. The black box that the pilot had in front of him looked like a dashboard measuring about one meter high by 0.8 meter wide, or about three by two and a half feet, in which there were two cat eyes, the kind you see on certain radio devices. Below this dashboard was a little... And a little above his feet, I saw a wide horizontal horizontal band with a vertical needle and some strange signs, which are undoubtedly numbers. To the right of the pilot, a little in front of the dashboard, there was a semi-opaque disc, like a TV screen switched off. The most impressive scene was that of two other identical men lying on two large, comfortable chairs on each side of the pilot and against the wall, appearing equally dead. They were not strapped and there was no belt. So he's pointing out that these things are obviously flying around in these craft, not wearing any sort of uh, safety belts. I guess they don't need them in these things. Who knows? Continuing, he says, their eyes were open and terrified with half-open mouths and a bit swollen, but why the third seat was empty? I touched it and found that it was a very soft material. The whereabouts of the fourth member of the crew evidently left leaving the door open began to worry me. Well, we don't know if there was a fourth member of the crew or not, but that would be something you would think of if there's an empty seat. There's three dead aliens but uh, sitting in seats, but there's one one seat that's not occupied, but and there's no other creature to be found in there. So I guess that would uh, pop in your head. You you might think, oh my God, I better get the hell out of here. There's still one of these things alive and might come back in here while I'm in here. And what the hell's going to happen if, if that happens? Uh, anyway, continuing... Uh, he says this, my attention was drawn to two rectangular power strips about four centimeters or about one and a half inches high placed on the floor and going from the center to the periphery, ending up on each side of the door. I also noticed on the dashboard a transparent sphere of 25 centimeters or 10 inches in diameter surrounded by a flat ring inclined at 40 degrees and it looked exactly like the planet Saturn as observed through a telescope. Was it an automatic calculator of latitude or collatitude? Lifting my eyes, I noticed that the control room wall was not continuing to the ceiling, but there was adjoining the ceiling a very pronounced circular relief with rectangular holes of 60 centimeters, about 2 feet, wide and 20 centimeters or about eight inches high. This perforated molding was repeated in the same way around the floor. 
A luminous globe of light attached to the ceiling was flashing slowly and emitting a white-orange light. I thought at that moment that the energy of the craft was still active, and a thousand ideas went through my head. A mad panic seized me, and a jolt of cold blood was all that was needed to regain my composure. I took a last look at the control room and went outside, sliding on the rough edge of the bell. When hardly on the ground, I suffered vertigo, and while breathing our air again, I realized then how heavy the control room air was and how distressing it was to breathe. So he finally... Uh, came to the realization was that I, I gotta get out of here and when he gets out he, he realizes wow the air was different in there that's really strange furious for not bringing my camera I thought of going quickly to General Acha a town situated about 200 kilometers or about 124 miles from the place to look for some engineer friends that were there I rushed to my car and found that in contrary to the usual the engine started with great difficulty, barely working and giving the impression that the battery was weak, even though I was sure that this wasn't the case. Once up and running, everything little by little began to return to normal as I moved away from the object. So now, now let's just look at all the stuff that's going on in this case. So he finds, not only does he find a crash saucer, he finds alien, dead alien beings inside of it. Four foot to four and a half foot tall beings, no hair. Uh, they look like men but they're short, they're not. They look, they're the size of adolescents, but they have uh, the faces of men, he says. Uh, who are these guys? Where do these ones come from? This doesn't sound like your, your regular kind of alien creature. Uh, but then again, as, as, we, uh, as we keep learning all the time, there's all kinds of different sorts of beings that people see. Um, so he takes, but, but he, gets out of the, he gets out of there, and he's feeling ill, he's feeling strange, you know, because of the air that he was breathing, and, and this car doesn't start. Like, how many times we, have we heard this kind of uh, story where people's cars are, are, aren't functioning properly around the, when a UFO is hovering over them? Here, there's one that's crashed, and, it's, and it seems like it might have been causing his car not to uh, uh, work properly. But luckily for him, it did, and he was able to get out of there, and then he did drive... Uh, uh, and back to this town, which was over 100 miles away, and he gets his these two engineer friends of his to come back with him the next day. And uh, unfortunately, we don't have those the names of those two people. Too too bad we we didn't. But uh, we do have the name of the uh, uh, of the original Bosa himself. So then they return, and here's what happens when they return. And this is when really things get crazy. We then set off at dawn, taking with us a Kodak Retina 2 camera, but because of a violent storm, we arrived at the scene at 12.45 hours or 12.45 p.m. The sky was half covered with cumulus clouds over the mountains. We looked for the object and we couldn't find it. The ironic expressions began to show on the faces of my friends when our attention was drawn to a pile of ashes about 7 feet high and about 16 feet in diameter that was exactly where I had seen the disc. The ashes had a red silvery, silvery color and were still smoldering slightly. I put my hand on it and noticed that the temperature was about 104 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, okay, so the ashes, now, what was that all about? Okay, I don't know, I mean, to, to transform a, a metal object into a pile of ash, I don't know what kind of technology that would require. Uh, or or what kind of metal it, that makes the, these craft uh, to allow something like that? But metal doesn't you, you can't try and transform metal into a pile of ashes. But in this case, that's what apparently happened. But even stranger is is what they saw next. 
At this moment, one of us raised the eyes to the sky and we observed a saucer identical to the one I had seen that was flying over us at an estimated altitude of 600 meters or almost 2,000 feet. I immediately took a picture of the object at the precise moment that it gained altitude. Above the craft, another object could be seen flying identically to the first one. And yet higher, we saw a cigar-shaped object hovering at some distance from us. The two discs headed toward the cigar-shaped object in, a, in, a, in an oblique climb, inclining as they traveled toward it. During their acceleration, the discs changed from a silvery color to a pinkish color. In a few seconds, the two discs met with the cigar-shaped object, which and they then disappeared, and immediately, the cigar-shaped object dashed off in a sudden fantastic speed that we estimated at 12,000 kilometers per hour, or 7,456.45 miles per hour. So, let me just stop right there for a second now imagine this imagine so there's a, they, they go back to this seat tells us two buddies engineers we're gonna go back to this seat we're gonna go back i gotta show you this thing guys can you imagine they get there and there's nothing there and then they're, they're upset they can't they don't see anything and then they they come upon this pile of ashes in the same spot now what was the pile of ashes? I mean, was it the craft itself that he had seen? Was it totally disintegrated or was it just the bodies? But the ashes were, I mean, it was seven feet high uh, and 16 feet in diameter. That seems like would that would contain more than just the ashes of, of some of, of the three, four foot tall bodies. Uh, but the craft itself was 13 feet high and 33 feet in diameter when he saw it the day before. And then when he when he go back it's now it's seven the ashes are seven feet high and the and the uh diameter of the uh of the ashes is 16 feet in diameter now that's amazing and on top of it they see two flying saucers and we've heard these kind of stories before too two flying saucers heading towards some gigantic cylinder shaped object that's floating up even higher in the sky and they disappear inside of it and then that cylinder takes off we've heard stories like that before this guy in they saw it all and 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 this is something that happened in 1950 and again this was reported in 1955 and then again in 1956 uh it's an amazing story uh and it when you really think about it uh it, 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 I guess this sh- goes to show that I, I guess in some instances the the aliens are going to come back and they're going to cover up. They're going to they're going to cover this up. If 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 one of their own crashes, they're going to and they find out about it, they're going to come back and they're going to make that evidence disappear before somebody uh, like militaries of the world take it back and 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 try to study it. Uh, obviously, that's what they were doing, right? I mean, they would they they're tr- taking care of the evidence. But he did get, uh, there was two pictures here. Now, the pictures are, are fuzzy. Uh, I mean, because, again, they were in this old uh, French publication from 1956. There were two pictures. It, it looks like one's further away and the other one, uh, I don't know if it's two different pictures or it's just the same picture that, and the second one's just a close-up. I don't know. It doesn't really say. Um, but still, he did get, there, there is a picture to go along here with this with this whole story. At least one of them. I mean, I don't know. It looks like it could be the same picture and the second one's blown up. I don't know. But anyway, here's the conclusion. Uh, the, uh, the writer says, What happened to the dead aliens? Since he did state that the bottom edge of the bell was a bit deteriorated and chopped in some places and was also tilted 20 degrees on the ground supported by a terrain relief, it is possible that the spacecraft crashed in that barren region of Argentina. 
I've noticed that since he was an architect, he was able to describe the exterior and interior of the craft in detail and appeared to be well-versed at taking measurements since he hardly used words like about or approximately. He had all the attributes to describe an unknown object in detail. Dr. Enrico Caratanudo Bosa was a former fighter pilot and architect by profession and had a doctorate degree in aeronautical engineering. So this guy is not some, this guy knew what he was doing. He was, he was actually in, uh, fought in World War II as a fighter, uh, fighter pilot for Italy. And here he is describing in detail, in, in precise detail of everything that he, that he saw, every, everything that he experienced from the, the, you know, both days, two days in a row. Anyway, here it says a, a Venezuelan ufologist and the main investigator in the case uh, named Horatio Gonzalez Gantunemi, who died in 1971, interviewed Dr. Bosa for several weeks. Dr. Bosa informed him that he suffered a fever or high temperature and his skin was covered with blisters. Even though he said that he was, has consulted with several specialists, none was able to formulate a diagnosis nor to alleviate its conditions its condition and those symptoms went away after a while also this was very interesting since he wore eyeglasses while entering the disc a red mark appeared around his eyes with the outline of the lenses a doctor had tested him with a geiger counter to determine if he had been exposed to radiation but did not find any trace in addition there were visible greenish spots on his skin which disappeared with the application of a medication the article, which appeared in Le Courier Interplanetaire, a French magazine, on April, on a, in April 1956, ends with a footnote indicating that the author of this report is a 44-year-old Italian architect who signs his name as Enrico Bosa. He asked on that occasion not to reveal his main name, Caratanuto, because his life has been tough in Argentina and Venezuela and has lost one of his jobs for believing in flying saucers. That is absolutely amazing story. Now, again, this story was told again. Uh, it was mentioned in, in books by Leonard Stringfield, but the information was incomplete, and in some, and, and there were some inaccuracies. In, in, yeah, excuse me, there were some inaccuracies and discrepancies. Uh, but this story is fantastic because you actually have. I mean, there's so many different elements that this that we have going here. I mean, first you have the discovery of the crashed flying saucer itself. You have the 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 bodies, the dead, three dead aliens he sees inside this thing. He goes back the next day with witnesses to look at this thing. It's gone, but replaced is a big pile of ashes, right? And then on top of it, they see these flying saucers hovering above them. And and then they those flying saucers take off, up, enters, disappear inside of this gigantic cylinder-shaped object, and then that thing takes off. And then this guy, not only after all of that, then he suffered. Then there's uh, he has physical effects uh, that he has to endure after that. The green marks on his skin, uh, the marks around his eyes because he was wearing glasses. Something happened to him inside that craft. Uh, there must have been some sort of force or something, some something radiating from it that caused this to happen to him. But this story has all the elements. I mean, outside of having a live humanoid show up. I mean, other than that. I mean, you got everything here. I mean, and, and this is, again, this is something that happened in 1950. And we would hear 
uh, like parts of these kind of stories later on from many other witnesses. You hear many times people say, uh, pe- witnesses, and sometimes multiple witnesses to, to an event will see you flying saucers fly inside a cylinder and take off. Here we're here. This is like one of the earliest kind of stories uh, of something like this happening. And you're hearing it. And this was, it has, it has everything. This story has it all. And it just goes to show that I guess if you give the aliens enough time, if they do happen to crash one of their uh, vehicles, they're going to, the, the com- their comrades are going to come back and they're going to uh, clean up the mess and, and make sure nobody finds it. And obviously that's what seems to be, have happened in this case, which is unfortunate in a way. Uh, I mean, you know, it would be interesting, you know, if one of these events would happen where there's like, say there was a busload of people driving down the highway and the bus driver notices uh, this craft on the side of the highway and they all get out with their cameras and take pictures of it and then go back to the local newspaper, provide the pictures to the newspaper, tell them about it. The newspaper goes out and checks it out and then it's all over the all over the front page of, of a newspaper and then it goes international and we're talking like 1950, uh, this happened in 1950. Say something like that would have happened at that time. Now, apparently, he waited until 1955 to tell his story to anybody that showed up in that Venezuelan newspaper initially, and then a year after that into that French uh, UFO magazine. I can understand why he waited. I mean, you could you, you could see why that's why somebody would want to not talk about it, especially when you don't have the evidence. What, there was nothing you have. You had the two pictures that he had, but again, that's not going to... Uh, in, in the scientific world, That that doesn't seem to... Uh, mean anything which i which i think is crazy especially when you when you put all these kind of reports together it should mean something right uh i would like this i would have liked to have seen the uh, actual clear images of those of those photos not not a reprint from an old magazine because as you could you know these pictures they're just not that good uh they're they're blurry and they're you know but again it's it's something it's something the story is amazing and i i just say this i i think uh when you have a sh- chance you should ch- I'll check out the link because there's more to it you'll you'll learn how you, you'll this this uh uh hr phillips who who runs this uh uh blog was you know this story he, he was talking about how other articles have come out over the years where there's it's they're filled with errors here we're actually getting the 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 the, we're hearing it right from the horse's mouth this is the story the original stories that appeared in the mid-1950s and and he he, these are direct comments these are direct quotations from the the witness himself fantastic story i've heard i never heard anything like this one before um excellent i mean the fact that they actually came back and destroyed it I mean, if the story's true, I, I, I don't see no reason why it would be phony. I mean, just look at the details in here. Why, I mean, why, if you're making something up, he's talking about when the, when the objects were flying into the, uh, this two saucers that they saw, him and his, the, the two engineers uh, that he brought back with him. They see two saucers flying toward the giant cylinder-shaped object, and they they, they turn uh, from silver to pink. Like, why would you include those kind of details in there? Uh, I just don't see it. This and this person didn't even want to use his real name. Uh, it wasn't like he was trying to make a fortune on this. He was just telling a story. He thought it was important, and it is important. It is an important story. This is a huge story. It's unfortunate most people. I I didn't even hear hear about this. Uh, or re- know the full story until just recently, until I found this blog site. 
because it's it, like even in in some of the uh, articles you find online about it, it's there's there's they're not they're incomplete stories, and some of them are are filled with information that's not true. Like in, in one article I was reading, he, it stated that the bodies were burned. That's not the case. When you read when you hear what the guy said himself, no, they weren't burned. The bodies were not burned. They were just dead. Why? Who knows? But again. Uh, this we're hearing it right from the horse's mouth with mouth with this article. Fantastic story, uh, incredible, incredible. Uh, anyway, I'm going to move on here. I'm going to talk about some of the, uh, the the last two polls I have run on Spotify. Um, uh, and this is for the episode. What does the United States government know about alien abductions? I asked this question. Is the secret UFO control group completely ignorant of the alien abduction phenomenon? Uh, and there were 67 votes so far. Uh, 10 people or 14.9% say yes, they're completely ignorant, ignorant of it. While 57 people or 85.1% say no, they're not ignorant of it. I, I have to agree with the no's on this one. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, no, uh, they have to know about it. There's no question that they know about it. Um, as far as I'm concerned, they would have to, they would have to be studying. You would hope at least that they've, they have, there's no question that they know about it. And we just don't know the extent of what they learn through their, uh, private studies of this, their secret studies of this. We have no idea, but there's, there's no question that the, the, the United States government knows about alien abductions. Uh, I, uh, so there's. What do they know about it? Maybe it's probably, who knows? For all we know, it could be terrifying. Or maybe they just don't know anything. They don't know enough. We just don't know. Uh, but we should know, and we should be told We should should be told about what they know. And, okay, moving on here. For the, art, for the uh, episode, New York Times writer wants UFO whistleblowers to, quote, show their car- cards, end quote. I asked this question. Why have mainstream news outlets like the New York Times largely failed the public on the UFO topic for decades? Uh, there's uh, 51 votes so far. Okay, uh, two people or 3.9% say disinterested. Three people or 5.9% say stupidity. Uh, six people or 11.8% say laziness. Um, uh, 10 people or 19.6% say other. Um, uh, 12 people or 23.5% say stigma concerns. Uh, 18 people or 35.3% say complicity. And that's it. I, I would have to say, um, which one do I think it is? I think it's probably a combination, actually. I think sometimes they're complicit, uh, depending on which organization it is. Uh, I'm sure some of these organizations, the publishers of some of these organizations, uh, many years ago might have been told not to not to touch these stories, to stay away from them, and don't worry about it. And we're, we're taking care of this secretly, and there's no reason to talk about this in your newspaper. You don't want to cause a panic, blah, blah, blah. So I would have to say that sometimes, yes, I, I have to agree with the majority here, that sometimes there's most certainly complicit. Uh, I would think too, maybe the stigma concerns. Yes, most certainly. Uh, there has to be stigma concerns in some, with some of these newspapers because they, if they started publishing, if the New, the New York Times, I'm sure, is concerned about making itself look like uh, uh, the Inquirer, right? I mean, so yeah, there's definitely stigma concerns. 
Uh, I would have to agree with laziness too. I mean, there's no question. I think there's laziness involved because I think a lot of these reporters who are writing about this or talking about this in these major publications or even on TV when they're talking about it on TV, for the most part, I think that they just, you could tell just by, you could just by listening to them, they just haven't done their homework. They just haven't done their homework on this. And they just seem like they're uneducated on the topic. Like the, the most they know about it was some, like a little bit that they read like earlier in the day and that's it. I mean, they, 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 they probably gave themselves a, a Cliff's notes on UFOs before they write their articles and then, and that's it. They don't really, they haven't really studied this thoroughly uh, or properly. That's all. Yeah. Uh, that's what I say. I, yeah, I, that most certainly laziness is part of this as well. Anyway, uh, I want to say thank you all for joining me until next time.